It's either blessings or curses, you see. Give a loan without any interest or fee. Those closest to us have the greatest impact. Don't add to the Torah or subtract. Okay, so this week's Parsha is Parshat Re'eh. And Parshat Re'eh begins uh, with Re'eh Anochi Noten Lifnechem Hayom Bracha Uklala. So what's fascinating right off the bat is the word re'eh means um, see, and the Torah goes on to say, see, I present before you today a blessing and a curse. But why does it say see? It should be hear. It would make a lot more sense to say hear, uh, to listen, listen to all of the um, blessings and, and curses that I show you today. But it, instead it says see them. It seems like the wrong the wrong sense. It's not not here. It it should be here, but rather it says re'eh. Rather it says see. So, um, one I saw two interesting answers here. One from the Malbim. The Malbim says that see means that it's in the present tense. You know, you can say, "Do you hear what I'm talking about?" And that only goes. You're you're saying do something in the future, but see is in the present tense, and the Malbim says that. You can see the people that uh, are following the Torah that that they have a certain amount of blessing, and it's something that you can see right away that they feel fulfilled. That they're people that uh, have you know a mission in life, etc. That they they live with a sense of purpose, and you can see that that brings them that that brings them blessing. Um, and the second answer I heard was that you know you, there's a saying, uh, do you. Do you see what I'm saying? And well, it should be, do you hear what I'm saying? But rather we say, do you see what I'm saying? And the reason that that expression exists is because seeing is something even that's more tangible, uh, that, that, that uh, it really means you have a full understanding if you can see it as opposed to hear it. You know, I think another reason why, this is my own reason, um, why the, it says, why the Parsha says re'e instead of, uh, instead of to see it, wh- wh- why does it say see instead of hear? Uh, one possible answer that um, I think is that you know hearing you can hear with your eyes closed. You can hear at any time. You can be woken up by an alarm while you're totally fast asleep. As where seeing takes some cognition. Seeing you have to actually open your eyes. You have to look around. You have to have light. You have to be conscious enough to actually see something. As we're hearing, you can hear when you're totally, you, you can, someone can hear something even when they're completely asleep, like when you get woken up by an alarm. So perhaps that's what it takes. So that's what Moshe is saying, that we should see the blessing and the curse, that it takes some extra effort. Hearing doesn't really take any effort. You just can hear it anytime, sleeping, whatever, your eyes closed, any of that. But for seeing, you have to actually be conscious, you have to be cognizant, you have to open your eyes. Um, okay, so uh, on that same line, it's interesting that Re'eh is in the singular as where Lifnechem, that's talking you plural, before you plural. So a couple answers here as well. The first answer I heard is that Lifnechem, um, which means before, before you plural, is saying that the same Torah is before all of us. You know, if you open up the, this parsha Re'eh, you'll also see the exact same line. Re'eh anochi notin lifnechem hayom bracha uklala. You open up any part of the Torah, you'll see the exact same Torah that I'm seeing. 
yet you most likely will see, you'll, uh, you'll understand it differently. You'll have a different takeaway. And that's why A is in the singular, because you'll see different things than I see them. And a third person will see them a different way. So yet lifneichem is that we're all looking at the same material. So we can all be looking at parshat re'ei in the first line uh, of, the, of the parsha, yet we can all have different interpretations. And that's why re'ei is in the singular, but lifneichem is in the plural because it's all the same material. The second answer I heard is that um, from the Khatam Sofer. He says that individual actions, they have um, community consequences. So when we say re'ei, it means see, you know, individually what we're going to do. But then once we make a decision about what we're going to do, the blessing and the curse is for the entire community, is lifneichem, is plural. Because what we end up deciding to do, uh, you know, what we do is an individual choice, but those individual choices have have community-wide implications. Okay, so one other interesting thing on this is the word um, hayom. So it says, uh, see, I present to you today a blessing and a curse. So I heard an interesting uh, interpretation here that the word hayom today is itself a blessing or a curse. What are we going to do today? You know, is today going to be a day that's a blessing or is today going to be a day that's a curse? We don't have to think about 10 years from now. We have to just think about the here and now, the today, the hayom. And is today, is right now, is it going to be a blessing or a curse? Um, and also, you know, the Torah says, uh, Moshe says here that bracha uklala, that it seems like our only two choices are either blessing or curses. And even though we kind of know that that's really not true, life is always on a spectrum. There's always various shades of gray. Yet, I think it's an important lesson that when we're weighing things, you know, when we think, should we do this, should we not do this? We should look at it in more binary terms. We should look at it, is this going to bring blessing or is this going to bring a curse? And um, even though we shouldn't simplify other, you know, everything down to black or white, bracha or klala, um, we should, to a certain extent, when we're thinking about the next thing, our next step in life, we should be thinking, is this good or is this bad? That simple. And uh, if it's good, you know, we'll do it. And if it's bad, we won't. Moving on. So the Parsha talks about, um, you know, when, whenever the Torah mentions the site of the Beit Migdash, which has been well known exactly what the spot is, you know, in Yerushalayim, it only meant, it, it, the Torah always refers to it as Hamakum, as, as the place. And most of the answers given to, as to why the Torah doesn't explicitly say where the Beit HaMikdash is going to be is because uh, there's going to be a lot of fighting if, it, if they openly said where the Beit HaMikdash would be. There would be other you know, nations trying to get there first. Uh, there would be other tribes trying to jockey for you know, that land and fight each other. And I think it's a valuable lesson here that you know, sometimes even when Hashem obviously knew exactly where the Beit HaMikdash was going to, going to be in Israel, specifically where it's going to be, uh, you know, on the Temple Mount in Yerushalayim, yet he's careful, the, the Torah is careful not to explicitly say where it's going to be, because sometimes it's worthwhile to not give information until it's necessary. And especially if that information is going to cause fighting, unnecessary fighting that sometimes it's worthwhile just to limit the information that we tell until we need to say it. So obviously, once the Jews got into Israel, they needed to know where to put the, the temple, uh, where to put the Bidah Magdash. But until that point, because giving that information too early would have caused fighting, 
the Torah doesn't doesn't uh, say it until it's absolutely necessary. Okay, next we get to this line in the Torah that says, Asher Baruchacha Hashem Elokecha, that um, that basically we should give offerings as Hashem has blessed you. And Rashi says that uh, that what this means is that your offerings, your the amount that you give, should be commensurate, should be equal to the amount of blessings that you have. And I want to suggest that maybe the opposite is also true. The more that we give, then the more blessings that we'll see in our lives. So as Hashem has blessed you, we'll get to give uh, to give offerings as Hashem has blessed you means um, in, on one hand that you know if we have a lot of blessing we should give, but on the other hand, uh, by giving we'll also have a lot of blessing. Okay, moving on to an interesting and fascinating point from Rabbi Wolby. So we get to the part in the Torah where um, meat, it, where, we, where we learn about that if you're too far away from the Beit HaMikdash to give uh, meat as an offering, then you're allowed to have meat by yourself um, as long as it's uh, slaughtered, you know, according to, uh, as long as it's slaughtered correctly. But... Um, but what's fascinating, Rabbi Wolvi talks about, is that you know we think about meat as the default. That of course we eat meat without giving an offering. But the Torah looks at it the other way. The Torah looks at it. The default is that you give an offering, and then only and then you know only if you're too far away, then you don't give an offering. But uh, and it's just a, a shift in our you know what's our default? What's our havam? You know that our default should be that we would want to give a uh, a. Um, give an offering, and only in those instances where we can't give the a korban, then we are able to just eat meat normally. But the default, again, the default, uh, according to the, to the Torah, is that we should be giving uh, a, a korban, a sacrifice. Either. So now it's not an option, but uh, just to have that in mind. Um, okay, the Torah also says, ki yarchiv Hashem, that when Hashem broadens your boundaries... And um, Rashi writes here that, you know, that and basically when Hashem broadens your boundaries, then, um, then you're allowed to, you know, uh, eat meat. And Rashi comments that um, basically that we shouldn't indulge in too many luxuries um, unless Hashem broadens our boundaries. So unless we have sort of the capability to enjoy those luxuries, you know, you shouldn't just enjoy them. Uh, without having the means to, to do so. Okay, moving on. So um, the Torah stresses again and again um, in this week's Parsha and other Parshiot that uh, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't eat blood. And the Torah, in fact, in this week's Parsha says that we should be strong, chazik, uh, that we should be strong to not eat blood. And Ben Azai has something fascinating here that Ben Azai says that blood is bad tasting. It doesn't taste good. You know, and um, so all the we so and if we need so much strength just to not eat blood, all the more so. How much strength will we need to prevent us from doing the tempting things? But if you will, I want to disagree a little bit with Ben Azai that you know in last week's parsha um, we talked about how um, we we talked about the, the beginning of last week's parsha in parsha Akev that Akev meant you know heal. And Rashi said, it's like talking about those mitzvot that we trample on with our heel. And perhaps eating blood is one of those. Eating blood is something that no one really thinks about because it's kind of gross. Um, you know, but with that being said, because nobody thinks about it, maybe we would even be, you know, 
more tempted to trample on it, more tempted not to pay attention. So perhaps it's specifically those mitzvot that maybe blood doesn't taste good anyways. It's not something that we'd want to do. Um, it's particularly those that may be ignored to the point that eventually they're accepted if you do it. So, um, you know, not eating blood might be something that is so repulsive to everybody that it almost in a weird way becomes something that's acceptable. Um, and, uh, you know, so just that general idea of that ikab, those things that we might overlook because they're so gross or there's something that we so, so totally wouldn't think that we would do that in the end, it might be something that we're not careful enough about. And, uh, in the end we might, uh, end up, you know, committing that sin of, of eating blood. Um, the Svarno also says that, so the Torah goes on to say that you shouldn't eat blood, um, because it's not right in Hashem's eyes. And the Svarno says that this is the real reason why we shouldn't eat blood. Even though it's true, blood is kind of disgusting, but that's not the, the, the disgust factor. is not the reason that we're not eating blood. Rather, it's because it's not right in, in Hashem's eyes. Moving on. So the Torah talks about how you shouldn't be attracted to idols um, after they have been destroyed before you. And what's fascinating here is why would anybody be attracted to an idol if you've seen that they had just been destroyed? You know, you're, the Jews are going into the land of, of Israel now, and they're destroying all these idols. So who would, why does the Torah telling me that uh, you shouldn't be attracted to those idols that were just destroyed? They were destroyed. You know, they, 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 are, they were proven how weak they were. Why would you possibly be attracted to them? And I think it's kind of the same reason, um, you know, and we had in a previous Parsha talking about how after a person sees a sota, uh, an, an adulterous uh, woman, that after a person sees a sota, they should become a nazir. They should become someone that grows out their hair and doesn't drink wine and takes, a, you know, such a spiritual path. Um, and, you know, it, but I talked about how it was, the sota bekalkula, the sota in her disgrace, meaning you're not seeing the sota actually, you know, at the uh, you're you're seeing the sota at their weakest point when they're actually being being killed, you know, in the in their disgrace, um, and it's sort of the same idea here that the idols, those idols are actually being destroyed, um, yet and even even then, you know, I think that this is just a, an interesting aspect of human nature that even when those those things are being destroyed, even if it's a sota bekalkula, or even if it's the idol that's being destroyed, we still have a tendency to think that it's possible. You know, we see it being destroyed, or we see the sota in a disgrace, whatever it is, and all of a sudden it becomes part of the realm of possibility, and we kind of have a desire to do it. So even an idol that is destroyed, even an idol that we visibly see how weak it is, it's still something that we should be careful uh, not to be attracted to. Moving on, so... Um, it talks of, so the, the Torah talks about how if your brother, your son, your daughter, your wife, um, or your friend will tell you to worship idols, you shouldn't listen to them. And in fact, you should be the first one to, to kill them. Um, so what's fascinating here is, you know, the Torah goes through this long list, brother, son, daughter, wife, people that are very close to you, your best friend. Um, and you know, what's fascinating is that, um, the closest relationships we have, that those, I think, have the biggest impact on us. So those people that are closest to us, you know, our close relatives or our closest friends, when those people tell us to worship idols, we're much more likely to do it. And that's why the Torah has to specifically warn for those closest to us, because those are the ones that are the biggest threat um, to, influence, to influence us one way or another. 
Another interesting thing is it talks about, the Torah says that you should be the first one to kill this person that's trying to convince you to, to um, you know, go towards idol worship. And I think that, you know, uh, it's an interesting thing, interesting idea that we should, um, even if, you know, if the, we have a bad influence in our lives, we should kill them, so to speak. You know, not literally a person. We shouldn't literally kill a person. But, you know, we should kill that bad force. You know, if there's something that's, that's influencing us in the wrong way, uh, we should be the first to try to, try to extinguish that, uh, that, bad, that bad influence. And, you know, we shouldn't wait around for others to help us. We shouldn't wait around for others to um, take the initiative to, uh, to fight them. Rather, for, rather, if we see something that's a bad influence on us, we should be the very first ones, as the Torah says. We should be the very first ones out in front. We should be the first ones taking initiative to, um, to address that bad influence. Moving on, so we, the, the, the Parsha talks about the Ir um, Hanidachat, which is sort of a, a rebellious city, and that they should be destroyed. And um, the, the Parsha says that Hashem will give you mercy after you destroy them. And um, as a result, Hashem will be merciful to you. So the Orachayim has something fascinating here. He says that, the Orachayim says that even though the Torah says that you should destroy this, this rebellious city, any type of destruction is all of a sudden is going to have a serious impact on you. Even though the Torah mandates that you have to destroy the city, it's going to this person that destroys the city is going to become so callous, is going to become um, so full of, of hatred and, and you know uh, have a certain um, inclination to destroying other things that that uh, the Torah says that by destroying the city, Hashem will give you some mercy because basically you're going to need it. You know, uh, a, a person, even if you destroy something because it's the right thing to do, we still have to be cognizant of the fact that it might influence us the wrong way. And also, what's fascinating here is that once Hashem gives, or once we have mercy, then um, Hashem will be merciful to us uh, in return. Okay, so next, the Torah says, Banim Atam Lashem, that you are the children of Hashem. And then the Torah goes on to say that don't cut yourself uh, when, you're, when you're mourning over a relative. And um, what's fascinating here is that so the, Ram, the Ramban says, uh, even though you shouldn't cut yourself, we see that crying over your relatives are okay. For example, when Avraham was crying over Sarah, over the death of Sarah. And, you know, it's, what's interesting here is that, you know, there's a concept in America of self-care, it's called. And uh, it's sort of a, a crazy concept that basically it's like we, you have a license to sort of do whatever you want. Uh, you know, usually when people talk about self-care, they say, you know, you should be eating ice cream all day and uh, sleeping and, and whatnot. And the Torah doesn't necessarily follow that, uh, that principle. The Torah doesn't say do whatever you need to do to feel better. No, the Torah has a set, um, set instructions on even how to mourn. You know, in, in times of mourning, there's a sort of a general consensus. Everybody mourns, you know, differently. Everybody, um, you know, has a different different emotions. But the Torah, on the other hand, tells you, no, there's a right way to mourn and there's a wrong way to mourn. That it's not right to cut yourself uh, when you find out about the, the death of a relative. And similarly, it's not right to pull out your hair when you find the death of a relative. Rather, it's, you know, only okay to cry over a relative. But interesting that, 
you know, even for that in America, we, we sort of think that any emotion that we feel is totally acceptable. And anything that we do, cut ourselves, you know, pull out our hair, any of that type of thing is okay in mourning. Rather, the Torah says, no, there are certain things that are okay, certain things that aren't okay. Uh, even in the context of, 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 um, of mourning, of that extreme emotion. Moving on, so we get to the idea of giving miser, and the Torah says, um, aser to aser, which um, means that you shall, you shall surely give miser, uh, you should surely give, you know, a tithing. And um, interestingly, though, to aser could also be to asher, which means to become rich. Um, and uh, there's a general principle here that you're, a person is allowed to test God to see, uh, you know, by, by, are they, will you become rich by giving charity? And supposedly you're allowed to, chest, to test God, um, you know, by giving a certain amount of charity, by giving uh, 10% of your income, um, will you actually make, make that up? But what's fascinating is even though you're allowed to test God, um, I don't have exactly an answer for how you're supposed to run this run this test because anyone knows a good experiment. You have to have a control group. You have to have, you know, one um, part of your money that you I guess that you don't give uh, any charity on, and the other part you do give charity on. But I think that that would be a problem because then you would be uh, in violation of this commandment that you have to give ten percent of uh, of your charity of your of your income. So. It doesn't really make sense to me how, you know, even though we're allowed to test God on whether we would make this money up, it doesn't make any sense how you would run a good, good test because there's no way to have a control group. So I want to suggest one answer. Perhaps you're not actually testing, are you going to get more money or are you not going to get more money? Rather, the test is, are you going to recognize all those good things in your life? You know, because really, if without the control group, we'll never know exactly whether we are we have more money or we have less money than we would have, you know, uh, had we given charity or had we not given charity. But we would know uh, by giving charity whether we become more appreciative. So maybe by giving charity, we're more 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 cognizant of all the gifts that Hashem has given us, all those amazing benefits that we have, all the wealth that we have, and will be more appreciative of it, will recognize it more. We will have more Korda Tov. We'll, we will we'll, uh, we'll recognize just how much good we have in our lives. And that's the test. The test is, are we, you know, by giving charity, um, we'll be more willing, more able to see all the good that we have in our lives. So we're also told in this week's Parsha that we should give out interest-free loans. And what's fascinating is the word for a lender in Hebrew is a malva, as where the word for accompanying is malava. And those are two, uh, those two words have the same shorish. So I heard a fascinating thing here that a lender, someone that gives money, so what's the connection between a lender and someone that accompanies? So perhaps um, a lender, someone that gives money to someone and then, you know, for, for a loan and then expects that money in return, that person is presumably probably pretty well off in business because they have enough money uh, to give them, you know, to, to, to give out as a loan. And that person is going to be rooting for and, and uh, giving business advice to the person that they gave the money to because ultimately they have a financial interest in getting that money back. So when a person gives money to someone 
they, that person is hopeful that they will get that money in return. And as a result, they accompany, so to speak, they accompany that person, they become their mentor. So that's one of the tremendous benefits of giving a loan is that, that, that uh, the person that's receiving the loan, they don't only receive money, but they also receive a mentor. They also receive a malava, uh, an accomp- someone that accompanies them. And uh, that's just a, a tremendous lesson there that by giving a loan, you're not only giving money, but you're also becoming a mentor, becoming a, a business mentor. And you're in, you sort of have a financial interest in accompanying that person to success. Moving on. So the Torah says, Poteach tiftach et yadecha, that you should open your hand to the poor. And, but uh, Rashi says, because the Torah says, Poteach tiftach, which is like a double open, um, it means that you should give again and again. And I think this is an interesting lesson that sometimes it feels like, you know, we give to charity, we give to a certain tzedakah once, and ultimately it needs to be given again and again and again. And this Parsha is saying that, Sometimes that's what it takes to give repeatedly. Moving on, so we, to the, to the last point here, so uh, we learn about the holiday of Shavuos and of Shavuot, and, um, and the Torah, and, and so the Torah mentions eight different people. Uh, it mentions the Levium, the converts, the orphans, the widows, uh, your son, your daughter, your slave, and your maidservant. And, um, and Rashi comments that, if you make, and it's talking in the context of uh, you should make, the Torah says that you should make all of those people happy on Shavuot. And Rashi says that on Shavuot, that basically God is saying, if you make my four people happy, namely the Leviim, the convert, the orphan, and the widow, then I will make your four people happy, namely your son, your daughter, your slave, and your maidservant. And I have a question on this, though. Why is that? Why is it that if you make the Levium, the convert, and the orphan happy, why is it that all of a sudden your son, your daughter, and your slave and your maidservant would be happy? Perhaps. I think the reason is because when you are kind, when you feel, um, you know, when, when, when you're kind to other people, when you're kind to the Levium, to the converts, to the orphans, to the widows, um, then as a result, your whole family is going to be influenced by that. So your sons and your daughters are going to be influenced by seeing how kind you are. And as a result, they're also going to be happy. So it's a fascinating lesson that when we, are, when we make others happy, that ultimately has usually a residual effect and it makes us happy. So, you know, an interesting point, of how do you achieve happiness? Perhaps the answer is by making others happy. Okay. Moving to recap some of the main points I talked about. First of all, I talked about how the Parsha started with those words, and I had many points on this. First, talking about how is in the singular tense, as where is plural. And I gave two answers for why this is. The first answer was, um, means before you, plural. Uh, meaning that we all have the same Torah, we all can look at Parshat Re'eh and see the exact same words, yet we all see different perspectives. We see our own individual unique perspective. The second answer I gave is from the Khatam Sofer that we each have our individual actions, our individual sight has um, community-wide implications. So by what we decide to do, ultimately has impacts on the entire community. Then I talked about why does the Torah say re'eh, to see, and not to hear? 
um, it seems like you should be hearing the blessings and the curses, the blessings and the curses, not to see. So I gave two answers for this. I said the Malbim says um, that uh, see is like in the present tense. You know, you see something right away. And basically, you can see that people that follow the Torah have a certain sense of mission, have a certain sense of accomplishment, and that they have blessing. Um, the second answer I gave is, you know, there's that saying, do you see what I'm saying? Even though you really mean, do you hear what I'm saying? Yet, uh, there's a phrase, do you see what I'm saying? Because seeing is almost more vivid. And sort of the third answer I gave was my idea that um, hearing, you know, a person can hear even when their eyes are closed, even when they're not paying attention. Uh, you know, you can be woken up by an alarm clock, even when you're fast asleep. Yet, seeing is something that you have to be more cognizant of, more awake for, more conscious for, take more of an effort. And perhaps that's what it's talking about, that you, re'e meaning that you have to take an effort, make an effort uh, to, to follow uh, the mitzvot and see the bracha. Okay, moving on. So uh, on that same topic, though, that the, why does, uh, why is the word hayom in there t- today? Why is that word in there? And I heard an answer here that before you today is a blessing and a curse. So the the hayom itself is the challenge. The, we have the we have the choice: is today going to be a blessing or is today going to be a curse? You know, right now, right at this second, uh, we can make that decision at all times today whether we're going to live uh, a day full of blessing or a day of of curse. Um, and also I talked about how bracha and klala is very binary. It's only either blessing or curses. And perhaps we should live our lives kind of like this, you know, as our next action, is it going to be good or bad? Even though we know that life is ultimately on a wide spectrum, um, maybe it's helpful in our lives just to think on the binary, you know, this is this next step that I'm going to take, is this next decision I'm going to make, is it going to be uh, something of blessing or something of curse? All right, so moving on, the Torah talks about how, um, you know, when, when, the refer, when the Torah refers to the, um, to the site of the Beit HaMikdash, it only refers to it as Hamakom, even though uh, it's very well known exactly, precisely where in Yerushalayim on Temple Mount uh, the, the Beit HaMikdash is going to be. And I talked about maybe the reason for this is because just by calling it the place, it's going to limit fighting. So there won't be so many, you know, tribes and other nations trying to get this specific piece of land. And I talked about just in general, when we have information to give, make sure that we wait to give it at the right time. Okay, um, I also talked about how the Torah says, Asher Baruch Hashem Elokecha, that has Hashem has blessed you, um, that, that you should give that you should give offerings as Hashem has blessed you. And Rashi says that your offering should be commensurate with blessing. And I also said the opposite is true, that when we give blessings, or the, sorry, when we give offerings, you know, when we're, when we're giving people, very likely um, that will also return to us as more and more blessing. Um, okay, so an interesting point. So next we get to this idea of talking about um, eating meat. So that section begins with Kir Yirchiv Hashem, that when Hashem broadens, um, when Hashem broadens your borders, and Rashi says, sort of um, on a drash level, that we shouldn't enjoy luxuries of eating meat. Um, only we should only enjoy luxuries uh, only when we sort of have broadened borders. But if the borders are tight, if we have pockets are tight, so to speak, then we shouldn't uh, indulge in too many luxuries. And I also talked about from Rabbi Wolby that the Torah really, the way the Torah explains it is that 
you know, the default is that we should be giving a korban, is that we should be giving a sacrifice for meat. And um, only sort of bidyevit, only sort of uh, after the fact, secondary, would we be willing to give, um, would we, are we able to eat meat without giving a sacrifice? And just an interesting idea from Avra will be that kedusha, that holiness, that, uh, you know, sort of giving sacrifices is the normal way of the Jewish, way of Jewish life. And it should be sort of, uh, painful a little bit almost every time that we eat meat and think that uh, the Beit HaMikdash isn't around uh, to, to give it as a, as a korban. Okay, moving on, I talked about how um, uh, that we shouldn't eat blood. The Torah talks about you shouldn't eat blood, and in fact, you should be strong not to eat blood. Um, and Ben Azai says that, um, that blood is bad tasting, you know, it tastes bad, and so if blood tastes bad and we're told that we have to have a strong heart, even more so, we should be strengthened um, to, we, we have to even have more strength to stop ourselves from doing those mitzvot that are tempting. And I kind of disagreed a little bit with Ben Azai because I talked about how in last week's Parsha podcast, I spoke about the uh, Parsha Ekev, where, you know, Rashi explains that there are certain mitzvahs that are trampled on, that are ignored. And maybe eating blood is one of those. Eating blood is sort of viewed as so disgusting that it's something that isn't talked about much. And the Torah has to go out of its way to say, even if it's not talked about much because it's so disgusting, you shouldn't become just say, well, no one talks about it anyways, so I think I'm going to do it. You know, even those mitzvot that are sort of trampled on, that aren't talked about much, that are sort of ignored, like eating blood, um, they might become so ignored that we don't think they're a big deal anymore. But the Torah says no. Even those mitzvot that we're probably not going to talk about much because we sort of think that blood is doesn't taste good anyways, even those mitzvot we have to be extra strong on, uh, or especially those mitzvot, uh, those, especially those mitzvot that, you know, we might not talk about a lot, we have to be extra strong for. Um, uh, also, the Svarno says that we shouldn't, the, the, the Torah explains that uh, we shouldn't eat blood because it's not right in God's eyes. So the Svarno explains the reason that we don't eat blood, it's not because it's disgusting, rather, it's because it's not right in God's eyes. Okay, moving on. So the Parsha says that you shouldn't be attracted to idols after they have been destroyed before you. And I spoke about why would anyone be attracted to an idol if they've literally seen that idol be destroyed? And I said this is sort of similar to the idea that if you see a Sota in her disgrace, then you should become a Nazir. And the obvious question is why in her disgrace? Uh, that if you see a Sota that's been disgraced, that's been punished, why on earth would you want to, would you have that inclination uh, to commit adultery. And similarly here, that uh, you shouldn't be, you know, why on earth would anyone want to follow an idol that had been destroyed? But it's just a part of human nature that even if we see something that's being destroyed, just knowing that it exists makes us a certain kind of tempted to, uh, to do it. Even if it's in a state of destruction, it's still tempting to follow it. Moving on, so I talk about, the Torah talks about how if your brother, your son, your wife, your friend, uh, if they tell you to worship idols, you shouldn't listen to them. And in fact, you should even be the first to kill them. And I talk about how um, the closest relationships we have, our brothers, our sons, our daughters, or you know, wife, friend, etc. Those people are going to have the biggest influence on us, the biggest impact. And that's particularly why those people are mentioned by the Torah. I also talked about how more on a drash level, you know, the Torah says that you should be the first to kill this, this person that leads you to idol worship. And so too for us, 
that, you know, those bad influences in our lives, those things that might be leading us the wrong way, we shouldn't wait for others to take care of them. Rather, we should take the initiative. Rather, we should be the first. If we have a bad influence in our life, we should be the first to, uh, to kill it, so to speak. We should be the first to, to get rid of it. Um, next, we move to the Ir um, Hanidachat, which is the rebellious city. And it talks, the Torah talks about how the rebellious city, it should be destroyed. But after it's destroyed, um, God will give us mercy. And the Or Achayim says that after anyone destroys something, even if it's under, you know, even if the Torah says you should destroy it, the Torah says you should destroy this, this rebellious city. Yet, just the act of destroying is so, has such a negative impact that God has to give us an extra little boost of mercy. Okay, so next I talked about how banim atem Lashem, that you are the children of Hashem, and therefore don't cut yourself when you're mourning over a relative. And um, I talked about this idea that, you know, when in times of mourning, that, uh, you know, that, that there's certain laws that we have to follow, that we're not allowed to do whatever we want. And I talked about how there's kind of this idea of self-care in uh, 21st century America, that, you know, you sort of self-care is a license to do whatever you want to, you know, express yourself however, however, you, however you feel like it. And the Torah says, no, that's not right. The Torah says that uh, there's certain things that you're allowed to do in times of, you know, in times of grief, and there's certain things that you aren't. And, uh, and the Torah is very clear that you're not allowed to cut yourself, not allowed to pull out your hair. And interesting that, um, you know, that, that contrast that uh, sort of today in America, self-care is a license to really do whatever you want and not care about anything. The Torah, though, has sort of a, a set of guidelines, even in times of extreme emotional um, vulnerability, like times when, you know, you, you lost a close relative. Moving on, so we, the Torah talks about giving one-tenth of your, of your wage or one-tenth of your crops to charity. And the Torah says, Aser to Aser. Um, meaning that you should like certainly give charity, uh, but you could also read ta'aser as ta'asher, which means that you would become rich. And I spoke about how um, the, there's this concept that you're allowed to actually test God to see if you give charity, are you going to uh, become rich? But I said, how is it possible you're able to test God? Certainly call in, you know, uh, let me know if you have any ideas about how it's possible to conduct this test, because anyone knows that you have to have a control group when you are, you know, having an exam, when you're, when, when you're making an experiment. So how are you able to have a control group, though? Because if you don't give charity, then you're in violation of this, of this commandment that you have to give a charity. So how is it possible that you would, you know, how are you able to understand whether you'd become rich by giving charity if you don't have a control group uh, to, to know whether or not you actually, you know, had more money in one hand and less on the other. Um, so I gave the possible answer that no, the test isn't really to understand how much money you'll have in the bank. Rather, it's to recognize all the good that you have. So, you know, normally maybe we'd find a dollar on the street and we'd say, oh, whatever. It's just there's sometimes dollars on the street. But maybe, you know, when we give one-tenth of our salary and we see a dollar on the street, we'll say, ah, that must be, that dollar on the street must be because um, I gave charity. And how beautiful is that mindset? How beautiful is that mindset to say that uh, every good thing that happens to us, that we can attribute it to the fact that we gave charity. And we become even more and more cognizant 
of those good things are. The koredatov, the, the recognizing the good, will be even more cognizant of recognizing that good when we give charity. Moving on, so I talked about how um, a lender a lender is called a malve, and um, to a company is called uh, accompanying is called malava, and those two words are related. They have the same shorish. And I spoke about how someone that lends somebody money, they um, are you know they're they're rooting for them. They're rooting for that person that was was lent money, because they hope that they'll get that money back. So as a result, the um, a lender. He doesn't, or that that person doesn't only give money, but also gives their business experience, their business expertise, and accompanies them, so to speak, on their way to success. They're, they, so a person that takes a loan, they're not only getting money, but they're also getting uh, a mentor, a business partner, someone that's rooting for them. Okay, moving on. Um, so we, the Torah says, "Poteach tiftach et yadacha," that you should open your hand. Um, and Rashi says, you know, open your hand to charity. And Rashi says that because we say poteach tiftach, like uh, it's like a double language of opening your hand, that we sometimes have to give charity again and again and again. Okay, moving to my last point, I talked about how on Shavuot, you have to gladden the heart of the Levium, the convert, the orphan, the widow, your son, your daughter, your slave, your maidservant. And Rashi says that if you gladden my four people, meaning if you gladden Hashem's four people, namely the Levium, the convert, the orphan, and the widow, then Hashem in turn will will um, gladden your four people, namely your son, your daughter, your slave, your maidservant. And what's interesting here is that how exactly will this work? And I want to suggest that by gladdening someone else, that we ourselves will become happier. So when we make others happy, when we make the Levium happy, when we make the convert happy, when we make the orphan and the widow happy, as a result, um, just by making others happy, we also, that will rub us off on us and we'll be happy. So the answer to the question, you know, how do you, how do you become happy? Um, maybe the, the answer to that is by making others happy. And with that, I will read my poem. It's either blessing or cur- it's either blessing or curses you see. Give a loan without any interest or fee. Those closest to us have the greatest impact. Don't add to the Torah or subtract. And with that, l'chaim l'chaim.